Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and it's great to have your company. To walk the last um, 20 kilometres into Santiago from anywhere on a pilgrim route on your own was just incredible. And in fact, I didn't meet a single pilgrim until I got into the square. That voice you just heard is Paul Murray. We'll get to Paul and his remarkable story in a moment. But first, this is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago. Almost 250 interviews with pilgrims from around the world who have walked or are walking El Camino, a series of pilgrimages across Europe. Pilgrims walk the Camino under the blessing of Christ's Apostle St. James the Stronger. The most popular route is what's called the French Way, which winds through the countryside from saint jean pied de port on the French side of the Pyrenees, across the Alps into Spain, and then right across to almost the west coast, to Santiago de Compostela. The city's name translates to St. James under a field of stars. And we're told the bones of the disciple are interred in a silver casket beneath the cathedral. No one can really say for sure if it's St. James. But ask most pilgrims who have walked beneath the field of stars and they'll tell you they most definitely felt blessed. They talk of small miracles. They talk of friendships formed that will last a lifetime. They talk of meeting people who needed help and they were happy to help. They talk of taking home those small miracles to their own communities. They talk of overcoming obstacles they never imagined they could overcome. And in most cases, the concept of pilgrimage and the lesson learned on the Camino become a sort of life map. It guides you to a method of thinking that lends itself to a gentler path. Perhaps you don't need all the bells and whistles. Perhaps you don't need to be quite so frightened or quite so worried. Or perhaps you you can relax a bit knowing you've encountered a pretty good version of you. What a blessing. Overcoming obstacles to lead your best life. Northern Ireland will feature throughout this week's episode, so when I went in search of a quote, I thought first of the Nobel Literature Laureate, Seamus Heaney, and in my search, I found a couple of worlds colliding. He said, If you have the words, there's always a chance that you'll find the way. My guest this week is Paul Murray. Paul's releasing a book called From the Gael Tucked, I think I've got it right, to Galicia. Gael Tucked to Galicia, a son's tale. Paul's on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Gracias. Dan, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Now, how was my uh, my Gaelic there? <laughs> Gael tucked? I regret to say the pronunciation is Angeltacht, and these are Irish-speaking communities in the west of Ireland. Yeah, that's right. So I did a bit of homework, and it's these regions where they still speak the Irish language. And why is the Irish language so important? to the Irish? Why these Gael tucked? Why these regions maintain their traditional language? Why is it so important? I think it's a, it's a case of the bonding the national identity, Dan. Um, it, we go to Wales quite often because my wife and I live here in Gloucester in England. Um, and it's just amazing the number of people that speak Welsh. Um, in Scotland, there's not an awful lot of Gaelic spoken 
In Ireland, it's uh, Irish is certainly on the increase in the last few years, and people, um, it's uh, it's the first language in in many secondary schools, and it it is it, it's a way of bringing bringing a nation together and proud of, of our heritage. It's such a beautiful language. It, it, it's I've heard it sung, um, and when it's sung, it's beautiful. It is, and it's a very poetic language mm. as well. Yeah. Um, I did Irish. It's 50 years since I studied Irish at school in, in Belfast. And uh, since um, since my and the, the website my brother set up uh, last year, the BelfastDoctor.info, mm. that sort of really pub- publicised my father's story. Yeah. Uh, Carl was, was, is my brother. Um, and... Dad used uh, Irish um, in, in his diaries to get round a censor, and I know we'll come to that shortly. Mm. But it was picked up by the Irish media, and um, and it's sort of the interest that 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 has been shown in Ireland has kind of led me to uh, reacquaint myself with with Irish, and I'm doing it through Duolingo, um, which I'm really enjoying. It's um, it's 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 terrific. So um, I've got the incentive to learn it. I, I'm a linguist. I'm a retired modern languages teacher, but I always found Irish really difficult at school, and um, and this. Um, so I, I'm enjoying it uh, tremendously now. It's reacquainting myself with the language, and um, and a lot of it is actually coming back. The book is part history lesson, partly an exploration of your spiritual pilgrimage, but it's. It's also a love story, a story about your parents, Eileen and Frank. And this book, when I read it, it's a son's blessing in many ways. So why don't you tell us about your parents? Oh, Mum and Dad, uh, thank you for that lovely compliment, Dan. Uh, uh, I never thought of it as a blessing. Uh, Mum and Dad met, um, they were both uh, Belfast uh, school pupils in uh, segregated schools as uh, as they would have been in those days and, and still are to a certain extent. I, I listened uh, yesterday to your interview with Maria Seco mm-hmm. and she was talking about living in Ireland. This is a, a Spanish lady from Pontevedra, living in Ireland for um, 15 years and how it was a bit of a shock for, for schools to be segregated. And it, to a certain extent, it still is nowadays. But back in 1929, uh, when they met in... Uh, in an Irish-speaking community, the Gaeltacht, in Ranafast, in Donegal, um, they they would have gone to sort of lessons in the kind of the local school during the day. So mum would have come from one uh, secondary school in Belfast, and and uh, actually she was in uh, from uh, Kilkeel, which is uh, about 30 miles to the south of Belfast. Mm. And... Um, the um, the students would have got together in, in the evening at, at a Kaley, at a local dance. And um, um, Dad describes um, the, the event when when um, uh, all the women, all the girls rather, were sitting along one side and the boys would arrive um, and he, he picked her out and, uh, and danced with him and that's how, how it all began. Wonderful. It's so beautiful. The story of the book is so gorgeous. But you write in one section there, I highlighted with my highlighter as I do, our paternal grandfather Charles 
bought a shop at 155 Old Park Road, Belfast in 1896, along with his brother Daniel, and they made it into mm-hmm. a spirits grocer's. What's a spirits mm-hmm. grocer's? Oh, it's a spirit grocer's. Um, oh, because they sold alcohol, basically. Right. <laughs> Okay, so yeah. okay. Well, spirits grocer. I don't think anything spiritual, I can assure you. <laughs> I thought, I thought, wow, I've, stum- I've stumbled onto something here. It's a good name for a song, right. Spirits Grocer. Um, there you go. <laughs> in another section, you write Our grandmother came from clones in County Monaghan. Educated partly in Dublin, she learned as a teacher to play the violin and was an avid reader, mainly of the classics, a love which she passed on to Dad and his seven siblings. When it came to emptying our family home in Newcastle in 2007, we were amazed at just how many books our grandmother had amassed. But during the period of the Great Depression in the 1930s, she carried food and blankets to the poor of the area, often to the detriment of her own family. As those were the words used by your dad. Tell us about mm. the poor in Ireland. This image the rest of the world has from films like Angela's Ashes, which is Ireland, not Northern Ireland, but I think the father in, in that movie was from Northern Ireland. Uh, tell us this abject poverty. How much is it woven into the narrative of the Irish? Yes, um th- I mean, you, you could kind of associate it probably, Dan, with, with Ireland being a, basically a rural community, especially in those days. But, of course, we were living in... Uh, Mum and Dad were living in, in Belfast, different parts of the city. Yeah. Um, and uh, I suppose my vivid impressions growing up would... Um, because Dad was a doctor in, um, in a working-class area of Belfast, he had patients from both sides of the religious divide. And... Um, I mean, they hadn't um, they hadn't much much money. Um, the patients that he he cared for, mm-hmm. um, and originally, I think the National Health Service, which extended obviously to Northern Ireland as part of the UK, I think it was set up in 1946 or 1948. But before that, when Dad got back from uh, the Far East uh, and being a prisoner of war, um, he would have. Um, uh, patients would have brought, um, would have come to surgery and would have just given him what they could afford, basically. And if they couldn't afford half a crown or whatever it cost for a consultation, and obviously for for the medicine, they would have dispensed as well. They, uh, he said, uh, no, just forget about it, you know. And mm. obviously everything changed once the National Health Service came in. But there, there was abject poverty uh, in, in those areas. And to a certain extent... Um, when the trouble started around about 1969, it was still um, uh, a situation with with incredibly high rates of unemployment, which were mm. just kind of rife in both Catholic and Protestant communities for for civil unrest. Yeah, I want to get to that. That's the most fascinating aspect of the book. But you also talk about your dad's time in India, and you mentioned earlier that he was in the war. He finds himself in Changi Prison in World War II, alongside a lot of Australians, I might add, um, and ends mm-hmm. up in prison on the Japanese island of Hokkaido. Did he talk much about it, Paul, when he came home? Like, do you remember him talking about it much when he was a, when you were a kid? No, Dan. Only when we went to uh, to Donegal on on holiday, we'd go for the month of July every year. 
a bit like the Spanish, you know, because they have a they take a month's holiday, don't they, rather than the sort of two weeks that people tend to, to take in this country. I don't know about Australia. Mm. So he'd be in a really relaxed frame of mind. So the, the seven of us, my four siblings and mum and dad, we'd all pack into the Austin Cambridge car and <laughs> drive the sort of five hours that it took in those days to get to Donegal and, and the west of Ireland. And uh, we would really um, ask him to tell us stories about the, the, the prison camp. And I suppose... Um, in our kind of formative years, basically, Dan, all we wanted to know was, did you ever kill anybody? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, no, he he didn't. Um, it really was, It's. I mean, I've got to pay tribute to my brother Carl again, because by transcribing Dad's secret diary that he kept every day for 42 months, apart from one month when he was in, in hospital, um the, the whole story uh, and the things that happened to him um, have have really resounded with us. And to be able to 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 look at some of the incidents and then to start reading other accounts of what other um, POWs have written about really brought the story to life. But now they were encouraged virtually told when they got back back to Civvy Street, do not talk about your experiences not because they're censored, but because it, it will it will bring up lots of uh, nightmares of the things that you went through. So the best way to cope with it in those days was uh, keep still, uh, don't quiet, uh, don't talk about it. Yeah. I wonder, your dad, you mentioned he's a GP and, and a GP in Belfast, and I want to talk about that. It's a terrific story, mm-hmm. to be honest. He, he's a medical officer in 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 uh, Hokkaido, and and when I think of images of those times, uh, Changi, um, it's desperate, it's disgusting, it's horrific. Mm. Did he mm. ever did he ever give you any explanation about how he survived? Because because so many didn't. Uh, that that would certainly, although he wouldn't have gone into specific stories um, when we were younger, uh, he we knew and and mum knew as well that that the two things that got him through were his Catholic faith mm. and uh, his love for our mum. Yeah. And he 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 mentions, and you read this in other accounts as well, Dan, that, that um, POWs have written and. Um, um, about the fact that the younger um, POWs, um, they they when they found things really difficult, they would sort of they'd have given up the ghost because they didn't have the support perhaps of a girlfriend or uh, correspondence wasn't getting through, and um, and they just felt so far from home. And and Dad knew that. Uh, that mum loved him, and they, um, I mean, it's so innocent, because they never even kissed, and they sort of got uh, got engaged by, by telegram, uh, by letter, rather, and um, sort of this, this was in before um, Singapore fell to the Japanese. So, um, yes, that, that, that was a, a, a really difficult uh, thing for, for the, the younger men, um, yeah. but his, his Catholic faith was... Yeah, it's the twin pillar of, um, of of those two things that that got him through. He's he's always said that. I'm talking about him as if he's still alive, but he died back in 1993. But writing the book has really allowed me to 
engage with him in a really significant level. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a terrific story. And the way you write it, it's as if we kind of get to know him in a way, which is, which is really a tribute that you've been able to pay to him, which is lovely. How does somebody continue to believe in God when they're overseeing such horror in a, in a, in a prison camp that your father would have seen such horror. How could he believe, continue to believe in a God that is happy to oversee that kind of hardship, that kind of horror? Yeah, it, it's interesting, you know. It, it, um, when you get events like, um, like 9-11 and, and um, at school at St Peter's High School in Gloucester, I mean, I've been retired as head of modern languages 10 years now, but I remember they... We used to have a, um, I, and I think it still goes on, a, a mass on a, a lunchtime once a week just for the staff. Mm. So in a little chapel in school, I remember um, one of the head of RE coming in and just introducing the mass and just saying a few words about 9-11 and saying how much it really shakes your faith that, 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 that an act as, as horrific as this could, could actually take place. So, I, th- I mean, in, um, in adversity... Um, the men somehow found the strength to get through. And in fact, one of Dad's many roles in the camp as, as the commanding officer, because he was a major, was uh, was a lay chaplain man. Thirteen prisoners of war died on your father's watch. Um, how mm-hmm. did he live with that? And did he talk much about that? No, he didn't. And that's the really interesting thing about the diary, because, because there's a daily entry. Um, he... He, he diluted uh, the, the horrors that they were went, went through because, you remember, the diary wasn't basically for, for wider consumption. It, it was a diary written to mum. So he, he, he spared her the horrors of, of what was happening in the camp. So the, the, the few occasions uh, when he actually did describe in slightly more graphic detail what actually happened to some of the men, one in particular, uh, Raymond, Private Raymond Suttle, um, it, it really uh, strikes you that um, he was so angry at what had happened. Mm. And, of course, the other thing was, uh, the, the, the big thing was, um, we should have asked Dad this. Um, how come the letters were, uh, the diaries were never discovered by the Japanese? How did you hide them? So there would have been a fear that um, if they had discovered the letters, that uh, there would be retribution um, taken on, on the prisoners. Sure, yeah, of course, of course. Tell us about catching flies for cigarettes. Oh, that's amazing. Now, that's the story that most resonates. There's a a guy called uh, Gregory Michener, I think, who wrote about the the hell ships. He's an American author, and um, so it's it's described in there. But the the original story comes from a – uh, a, a prisoner from uh, Kent called uh, Keith Mitchell. And um, Dad doesn't recount the story in the original diary, but uh, in the um, in the bowels of the, the prison ship, so the, the prisoner spent three weeks um, travelling from Singapore to Moji in the southern Japan um, to divert them from... Um, 
the cramped and appalling conditions on on the boat and the, the exercise, they were only allowed up about half an hour a day. Um, he got them to um, to catch flies, and obviously the, the 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 bonus from that was not just keeping them occupied uh, and active, and the men falling over each other to try and catch the flies, but basically to reduce the possibility of um, um, a disease. And so um, they would have had to catch ten flies and bring them to him, and he was in charge of the cigarette allowance. So he breeds ten flies. They would have been given a, a part of a of a cigarette, and there were in the hold were just. I mean, all my siblings are just so proud of the story, and to say that there were no casualties in the hold of that particular prison ship called the Wales Maru. You and I can't imagine it, can we? No, no, we simply can't. It's the most extraordinary thing. And you talk there about. Uh, much of what you write about from that time comes from the the diary the and some letters that your father wrote home to your mother. What was it like when you sat down to write the book to relive those messages? Very special. Um, I, I, Carl did, a, uh, my brother, he did a, a, a 1980s version of the letters Based on uh, Dad's thoughts, um, what was what would that have been? Sixty, uh, well, fifty years later, uh, Dad wrote um, a version having having met Keith Mitchell in, in England. Um, so he he would have put his, um, of course, it wasn't the original thoughts, but but things that had come to him since, and and more criticism of the Japanese in the letters. So. Uh, before I started writing the book, which I began a, a couple of years ago and managed to finish in two years, thanks to COVID, because I got plenty of time on my hands, um, uh, it, it was just lovely to be able to dip into uh, a date like 23rd of October, which is today, mm-hmm. and uh, seeing on the 23rd of October 1942, what was he doing, or moving forward to 1943. So. To have to have that at your elbow was always always good, but but absolutely essential in writing the book. Mm. And then, of course, with names being mentioned, especially the thirteen that died on Dad's watch, and being a member of the um, researching FIPO history group, um, which uh, and and co FIPO children of the Far East prisoners of war, then you've got um, you've got access to other documents. So. I had those at, at, at my elbow to be able to dip into and flesh out some of the details. And I mean, you're constantly finding out new things. And I, I know with the book being published um, that there will be more people that, that will get in touch. And, and hopefully my big, uh, one of my big aims is to get people to, to go to Japan because people will go to Singapore and visit it, but... Um, people that that you find that are extremely uh, tolerant, you know, that have had a father or a grandfather or an uncle who's been a prisoner for, and you say, um, oh, yeah, you've been been to Singapore, that's great. Uh, Have you been to Japan? Oh, oh no. Oh, no, I wouldn't go there. And uh, some of the the older men and the researchers in in Japan that um, that I met, uh, I I asked them, with the help of my interpreter, um, have... um, have many um, 
families uh, sort of come over to, uh, to to follow in their in the footsteps. And they said, "Well, we've had hundreds of Koreans that have come, but um, mm. um, if you add together the number of British or Dutch or American families that come, that's probably about five. And oh. you're thinking, well, this this is just incredible. Um, I know it's an expensive country to go to, and it is it, it is a great distance away, but." Uh, I was staggered to hear that that so few wanted to come. Perhaps some on principle that no, no, I'm not going to go to that country. Yeah. Despite everything your father went through, you write in the book he rarely, if only briefly, complains of feeling unwell. But a frostbitten right thumbnail he gets on Thursday, the eighth of February, nineteen forty-five, is the only one physical manifestation that, as children, we all remember. Tell us that story. Oh, it's it's, um, it's, it, it's just something as a, as a young boy or a young member of a family, you'd, you'd just be aware of that sort of physical manifestation of, of the thumb. And, you, and it, it, that, what really brings that home, uh, Dan, is the incredibly high humid temperatures in Singapore. And then they were in, you know, the, the most basic, clothing as they headed off to Japan. Hokkaido, as you probably know and your listeners, it's the northernmost island on Japan and it's got freezing winter temperatures and you're thinking, you know, you, you see these documentaries about people climbing Everest and stuff and I, I, I myself and my wife, Jamie, just love the mountains and 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 when you when you see their, their hands being frostbitten or their face or whatever and uh, the blood circulation is gone, you think um, it's and then you read the, the diaries and, and the, the extremely cold temperatures in the winter. And mm. uh, when I visited in, in October and November 2017, um, it was getting decidedly uh, chillier, certainly. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the other thing, the physical manifestation that would have stared all of us in the face, particularly when when we left Belfast, we, we were forced to leave uh, at the height of the the troubles really and uh, dad took early retirement in 1975 but he was presented in September uh, 1945 with an, an enormous scroll of tribute by the 350 British and five American POWs in uh, the final uh, prison camp that he was in so so this um, uh, rather than a, a kind of a separate room in our large house in, in Belfast the bungalow in, in Newcastle, where mum and dad moved to, this uh, huge school of tribute, it, it sat on the wall behind uh, the TV. Yeah. So you could see it uh, all the time. And it, it's a most moving tribute. And um, it, um, it, it moves you to tears every time you read it, basically. Yeah. Uh, so that's been a, a, a real um, journey in discovering the background to it and who the calligrapher was and who the composer of it was and uh, Carl's done some brilliant research into that as well. Yeah there's a beautiful picture in the book Paul of your mother and father Eileen and Frank on Newcastle Beach as you say in County Down. They look blissfully happy and you have to admire someone who could have lived through what he did, actually both of them really, and still come out smiling. And you mentioned there that you had gone um, to Hokkaido and you walked in his footsteps in many ways, Paul. Retracing your father's war journey, what did you learn on that pilgrimage yourself? 
Um, well, I, I'd start on the, the the Singapore leg of the of the two country visit to the Far East. And um, my sister Valana joined me. Uh, she lives in in Canada, and we walked the uh, the fourteen miles from. We reenacted uh, Dad's walk into captivity, which was uh, six days after Singapore fell. Mm. Um, we walked from the Padang and St Andrew's Anglican Cathedral. Um, in the centre of uh, Singapore, which was used as a as a hospital and an operating theatre before the the Japanese invaded, mm. uh, so we did the fourteen miles or twenty two kilometre walk uh, as a pilgrimage out to to Changi, and uh, that twenty two kilometres is the average walking distance that I would have done as a as um, a pilgrim on the, the various caminos that I've done in Spain. So that was symbolic in itself. It, they really the thing that uh, the, the Camino does. Um, I mean, it, it it teases out your vulnerability basically, and because of the the uh, the arthritic condition that I've got that I inherited from Dad, uh, it meant that I was able to do eleven miles, uh, but had to give up for the last three. Mm. And Valana carried on with uh, the son of her. Uh, um, uh, prisoner of war from a very famous person, David Marshall. So uh, his son Jonathan uh, accompanied us on the walk, but but they carried on to to Changi, and I took a taxi for the last three miles, uh, and then welcomed them when we got to Changi. Um, so that was very special um, um, to reenact the walk um, and using Dad's diary, and again um, Keith Mitchell, uh, some of the landmarks along the way that that they would have seen. Um, and then um, Delana, because um, it was quite a demanding uh, schedule that I got for Hokkaido, she felt that uh, she wasn't able to accompany me there. So I was going to be in something like five hotels in in a week or slightly longer. So um, uh, that, that was incredibly important. I got the most tremendous welcome in Japan from everybody that I met. Um, it made me feel very... Um, very vulnerable as well because uh, I visit Spain very often because um, I volunteer to to run the uh, Refugio Gaufelmo and being fluent in Spanish and relating to the locals in Rabanal, you suddenly go to a country where you have zero language uh, and you so much is relying on gestures. Yes, I had an interpreter and a guide, but my goodness, um, what are these people saying to me? And and the older people that, that were talking about what happened and the Japanese version of of um, what they saw as the prisoners of war because the Japanese suffered a lot in uh, in that area in Hokkaido and all over the country. You should get the other side of the story, but they weren't that patient in, in allowing my translator to, to give me what mm-hmm. they were saying in English. Um, but I did find a tremendous amount of what was going on. You know, there, there are two sides to every story, you know. Yeah, that's right. You, that's so true. And, and let's talk about two sides to a story. You write in the book, um, our dad's family came predominantly from the townland of Cullion near Draperstown in County Derry, and he spent every summer there with his brothers and sisters when they were packed off, armed with cricket bats and tennis rackets and footballs. 
But on a more sinister note, four of his uncles used to take to the hills in the vicinity each night in the early 20s to escape raids by the blackened tans, the ill-disciplined British military force recruited into the Royal Irish Constabulary. They were drawn from the ranks of the soldiers who had survived the Great War and were infamous for their reprisal attacks on civilians. So let's talk about faith and religion, and politics, and nationalism. The combination of all of them has fueled conflict in Northern Ireland for generations. What was it like being brought up in the Troubles? Oh, well, I've got a chapter on the Troubles in the book, Dan. It's um, segregated schools um, are, are still very much the norm in, in Northern Ireland, and it's, it is beginning to change an integrated colleges uh, and, and schools at certainly at secondary level um, are beginning to appear. So it, it was really weird, Dan, being, um, being uh, going to a Christian Brothers Grammar School in Belfast for seven years and never having any Protestant classmates, um, um, nobody from the other side. And then you go to uh, Queen's University, which I did to do my five-year modern languages degree. And because I was doing Spanish um, as well as French, the majority of students that would come would again be from Catholic secondary schools because uh, Protestant um, secondary schools tended to study German. So there was just a handful of schools. I can remember a, a, a student from Grosvenor High School in Belfast uh, doing, a, doing Spanish uh, as part of his degree, and, and he was a, a Protestant. And it, you sort of thought this this is the first time I've got to to meet Protestants, let alone relate on a on a, a personal level. Mm-hmm. So um, it is the way forward, and um, these kind of barriers are of, of of segregated schools. And you know, uh, as far as, as I was was concerned, they, they, Protestants could have had horns growing out of their heads because they never met them. You never went into. A, uh, a Presbyterian or a Church of Ireland church. You just didn't do that, you know. Um, the, the kind of vocabulary that people used was that um, he or she has turned, implying or, or saying that uh, they would have changed their face, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, oh, no, don't go into to one of those churches. And it's just ridiculous, you know. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that your father was a GP in Belfast at that time. There's a terrific website. You mentioned that your brother set it up, the BelfastDoctor.info. Uh, there was even a doc- talk of a documentary about your father and, and the work that he did. Did he treat people from both sides of the conflict? Oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you can tell, you probably know this anyway, people people in Ireland, especially Northern Ireland, um, can spot from a name a lot of the time uh, whether someone is is a Protestant or a Catholic. So they they were equally so from from both communities. Mm. Um, one one of the advantages of a name like mine uh, is that you can't tell uh, what uh, foot I kick with basically. <laughs> so that's uh, that, that that's nice in itself. So in the old days, I'm talking about sort of being a, a teenager. Yeah. Um, people would uh, kind of. Uh, trying to work out whether you were one or the other, basically. Then they would say, what school did you go to? Just happened to drop it in the conversation. And I would have done the same. But, of course, living in a, in a much more tolerant society, which which is 
which is what England has shown me that things like that just don't matter, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They don't matter. We talked about the love story in the book, the love between your mother and father, and you write about their pilgrimages to, I hope I pronounced this right, is it Loch Derg? Is that right? It is, indeed. Okay. Yes. Talk us through those journeys, your mother and father's pilgrimages to Loch Derg. Yeah, they did. Um, it's staggering, actually. They did 11 in all, but not together. And, and they did they did promise each other in, in the letters that they, they would go together. But um, uh, Vilana, my, my sister that, that uh, I was telling you about in, in Singapore, uh, she came along within a, a couple of years of uh, them getting married. And then there were, um, I've got two other uh, sisters and then a younger brother. So there was just not time to go. So it was, um, it, it was very special for them to go. And people still make the pilgrimage. It's, it's, it's very arduous. I sort of say in the book that I would much prefer um, walking a, a thousand kilometers from uh, Sevilla to uh, Santiago de Compostela than um, spend a, a weekend barefoot on a on an island in the centre of a lake in uh, County um, County Donegal, County Fermanagh in, in Ireland. But wait a minute, before you go on then, what is this pilgrimage yeah. to Loch Derg? Why are you barefoot in the middle of an island? <laughs> What's going on there? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and you have, uh, I think the only thing you have on the first night there over the, the Friday to my, uh, Sunday basically is, is water, and I don't think you get your first meal until the the, the Saturday evening. Um, so it's uh, it's traditionally um, it's St Patrick's um, Oratory on um, in a church on on this tiny island, and and for centuries pilgrims have have made a pilgrimage out to the island. I mean, it's the, it's the same idea if, if you're doing a certainly if you're doing a a walking pilgrimage in in Spain or, or whatever, you're going to get blisters, you're going to get tendonitis. Um, so the the suffering is uh, a little bit a part of it. Okay, so that's the Loch Derg. The Camino de yep. Santiago has been a huge presence in your life. In the introduction mm-hmm. to the book, you say, I linked my interest in long-distance walking pilgrimages in Spain and, to a lesser extent, my parents' multiple pilgrimages to Loch Derg with dad's imprisonment in terms of not only their respective physical challenges, but also the desire to subsequently change how we treat our fellow human beings. In recounting some of my experiences on three pilgrim routes, I've grown increasingly aware of the value of prayer. Now, this is where we combine your father's story your father and mother's story and your story because I want you to tell us about the value of prayer. When I set out to do the, the my first pilgrimage, um, um, which was a Camino Frances in uh, 1998, so Dad had died in 1993, the, the idea took a, a little bit about, about suffering there um, just to experience in an infinitesimal way, just a little bit of what he went through, just to mm. to identify with him and and uh, to reflect. Um, the byproduct really was those quieter moments, you know, because especially when you walk on your own. I, I did walk with a, a companion from just across the road here in in Gloucester, Keith, 
and we were together for for three weeks. But when we were forced to split up, when I had uh, tendonitis problems, um, it became a much more spiritual pilgrimage and a much more religious one. And I would um, renew, I suppose, my my faith, my my belief in God grew a heck of a lot more. Mm. I mean, people talk about. Um, people that don't know about the pilgrimage, apart from the fact that they think, well, how on earth can you walk so many so many weeks? But I think a lot of people sort of look at you, especially in England, and, and think you're some sort of religious crackpot, you know? And, it, <laughs> it, and it's just not like that. So um, particularly, um, as, as you know, I, I've always done my, my pilgrimages in, um, in sort of high summer, um, and particularly that last hour of the day, Dan, normally you try to get off the, the route by by the time the midday sun comes along. So that last hour or so, when uh, it's much more difficult, uh, you would start to pray, I, I found, for... Um, it's kind of a, a byproduct of what I didn't expect to find on the Camino. You'd, you'd pray for um, uh, friends and family that, that were ill. And then on another day, you'd, you'd pray for... Um, family and close relatives that had died. And then really curiously you'd think, well, what about them? What about family like grandparents that you never, ever met or stories from from um, from the past? And um, and these people deserve your prayers as well. You've got all the names. Uh, thanks to Carl, he's great at looking at uh, genealogical family trees. So those names were sort of their kind of thing. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a duty to do that as well. Who do you hope is listening to those prayers? Oh, um, well, what, oh, God, Jesus Christ. Um, uh, it's um, it's just so so much a part, especially when when you're on your own and being reflective. Um, uh, I I remember walking into Santiago. It's um, the the last pilgrimage I did was in 2014. I, I couldn't do the thousand kilometers in in one go from Seville. Um, so I did it in two goes, one in the first half as far as Salamanca, and then the second half um, two years later in 2014. And um, as I got closer to Santiago, it was uh, it was Easter time. Um, quite a number of Spanish pilgrims who you probably know, some of them will do just a week on the Camino because they're yeah. committed to the work jobs and stuff like that. So... It got to uh, around about Good Friday, I think it was, and th- suddenly all these pilgrims joined for, from Spain, and they had to get to Santiago by Easter Sunday because, unlike in uh, probably Australia and, and in this country, people go back to work in Spain on Easter Monday. It's not a holiday. So I was suddenly found myself, because I, I had some leg problems towards the end, um, I suddenly found myself... Uh, totally on my own, walking into Santiago on, on Easter Monday. So to walk the last um, 20 kilometres into Santiago from anywhere on a pilgrim route on your own was just incredible. And in fact, I didn't meet a single pilgrim till I got into the square. How fantastic. Oh, my gosh, that's just so wonderful. Tell us about Donegal in northwest Ireland. You mentioned it earlier, your family would go there, but it's links mm. with Spain. You write about it in the book. Tell us how that story resonates with you. Uh, Donegal, I have to correct your pronunciation where, where the stress <laughs> <can>. <laughs> Donegal. 
you've done well done great stuff there's the teacher in me <laughs> it's a bit like talking to you just doing pronunciation and stress dan a bit like talking to your students and saying um if i start saying something like what planet are you on rather than what planet are you on it totally changes the sort of the meaning and people sort yeah. of look at you so yeah yeah um Donegal's, um we never wanted to go abroad when we were younger and obviously package holidays sort of i mean i'm 67 now package holidays didn't exist really when when we were teenagers but i mean even when they, they started to come in we, we didn't want to go anywhere else um Donegal's always been a, a very special place for us and that's where my my book launch will be on the on the 6th of november in the village where mum and dad met and um but the, the link with, with Spain and the Spanish Armada, um, a lot of the, the majority, in fact, of, of the vessels um, after the, the defeat of the Armada in, in the English Channel, they returned to Spain, going up the North Sea, round the north coast of Scotland and down the west coast of Ireland. And the second in command of the Spanish Armada um, suffered uh, two shipwrecks and eventually in the third one um, he didn't survive and, and was drowned with uh, a thousand other uh, sailors uh, uh, on the treasure ship the Girona off the North Antrim coast but getting back to Donegal his second shipwreck was on the Santa Ana um, at a, a little village called Rosbeg um, which means the small peninsula in Irish. I used to think it was a small rose, but it's not. It's a small peninsula. And he survived that shipwreck. His name was Don Alonso Martinez de Leiva. And the reason I chose to put him in the book, um, apart from the, the kind of folklore in the area um, and the stories that the locals would, would talk about the Armada, was that there was um, an Irish sailor that sailed with him originally called James Macquarie, and he uh, wrote an account, transcribed by scribe, I suppose, and the uh, characteristics of uh, De Leva were very similar to my dad in that the nobility, uh, the sons of the nobility of Spain all wanted to sail with De Leva, and their admiration for him was, was uh, total. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that, although the link might seem a little bit obscure, uh, my fascination with Spain and, and looking at some of the documentation that I came across in the National Archives in Simancas, um, near Valladolid, in the centre of Spain, which is also on the Camino de Madrid, I think it's called, mm-hmm. on another Camino. Um, it's been fascinating piecing together some of the, the history of, um, of that second shipwreck on, on the Santa Ana. You've done so much work. It's, it's a brilliant read that aspect of the history not only the war your father the troubles spanish armada and and its relationship with ireland and your upbringing and and your your history but you also write about rabanel del camino tell us about your relationship with this little town that most people stay at the day before they get to the cruz de ferro yeah, it's um, it's a village rather than a town. So they've got 40 in- inhabitants uh, all year round, and the numbers swell in the summer uh, when sort of the younger families would return to mm-hmm. be with their, their parents or relatives or whatever. So that they would, most of them would, in fact, live in Madrid. So the numbers would swell, and of course, the numbers would triple in the summer with um, 
with pilgrims arriving. And I have to correct you and, and say that it, it's really sad now, Dan, because a lot of the pilgrim guides for that particular stage of the Camino, they recommend you start in Astorga and you go up to Fonte Badon at the top of the mountain, yeah. close to the, the Ferro and... And that's so that you can be there for the sunrise at six o'clock or whatever time it is. So a lot of pilgrims are bypassing Rabanal. Right. And it is uh, a very special place. I mean, I know you've been there a, a couple of times, haven't you? Yeah, um, I love it. Uh, I yes, absolutely but, uh, love it. But they'll, I, I know, and they'll have a coffee at 11 o'clock, you know, they'll, they'll mm-hmm. get up at seven or eight. So they'll be there in three hours and, oh, let's carry on up to the cross for this flipping sunrise. And um, the, the the little church across the square from, from Gauthelmo, from our yeah. hostel, um, it's it's one of, I mean, it's such a small village, but it's got three churches in it, and the most humble of the three is Santa Maria, and that's where um, Compline and, and Vespers are, are sung, and the monks come across, there's uh, three monks there permanently. So they come across from the church. And at tea time at uh, five o'clock in mm. the, the huge uh, idyllic garden that we've got at Scalthelmo, they'll, they'll come across and they'll say Paul or, or Jenny, Jenny Heesh from yeah, uh, Australia. Yeah, Jenny, yeah. Yeah, she's great. So yeah. 2018, I, I did a stint as an hospitalero with her and... Gilbert Cabergs from Belgium. We were a great team. But anyway, uh, uh, so the monks would come across and say, are there any readers that you'd like to, to read um, at um, Vespers? I said, Vispera in, in Spanish. And uh, so we would approach people. Normally, the Spanish, so they'd like a Spanish reader normally and a German one, an English one, and a French one. That's normally what it is. So we would s- sort of say, uh, yes, and, and then we'd ask someone, would you like to read? And and a lot of the Spanish would say, uh, it's a bit sad in a way, oh, can you get somebody else? I'm Catolico no practicante, as in a, a non-practicing Catholic. And we'd sort of say, well, well okay. Um, but, I mean, we've had agnostics, I'd say we. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's not us, but, uh, but um, it, it, it is a special part of the, the pilgrimage to yeah. have a a service that's very much geared towards pilgrims. So we'd say, well, it doesn't matter uh, one faith or none, uh, you're perfectly welcome to read. And it, it's such a privilege for, and they talk about that afterwards to, to read or whatever, but it, it's a marvellous village. And, and Maria Seiko talked the other week about um, about having the language. And it's wonderful to be able to communicate with the villagers. I mean, I, I stayed there in 1998 on my first Camino, and I got there down at 12 o'clock, and there was a great big queue of pilgrims outside the front door, and I thought, I'm not going to get a bed. This is the one place in 800 kilometres that I want to stay in. And then they sort of, they, they um, the hospitaleros on duty said, is there anybody that's on their own? Because we've just got this one spare bed. And I said, yes, please. Uh, and they signed me in, and that was special um, to be there. So um, wonderful! When I started to volunteer as an hospitalero. Uh, my headmaster at St Peter's was happy for me to go because I get to practice my my Spanish. And so, even though it was sort of the last week in term and not too much happening at school, he he allowed me to go. So um, wonderful! I volunteered five times as as an hospitalero there. 
Tell us about walking the Camino with the choir. In 2019, um, just a, a small group of us, uh, the choir that I sing with, the, choirs, the, the big choir, there's about 100 of us, and we're, we're based in Worcester and Gloucester. Um, but a small group of us, um, I got together, there were 10 of us, and I think uh, three camp followers, for want of a better word, uh, who came along. And we had a, we rented a couple of people carriers and uh, flew into Madrid from Bristol. And we uh, drove to Rabanal. Um, we stayed overnight in the Maison, which is just the other side of the square from Garthelmo, mm-hmm. with Christina and um, Antonio and their family. And we rehearsed um, as a dry run for three concerts that we were going to give in three churches. By the way, we never got crowds like that. We never really get crowds like that in England. In Spain, it was just incredible. The churches were packed and we went down really well with locals. So we rehearsed in the the salon, in in the, the lounge, the pilgrim lounge in the hostel, and then we gave a little impromptu concert. It was just a dry run in the open air in the garden at uh, at Gauthelmo. And then we set off walking uh, the next morning with... Um, so we would take it in turns, the, the drivers of the two vehicles, to to drive while the rest would walk. Um, so um, because I've walked up to the cross many, many times, um, when on duty in, in Rabanal, I obviously did the, the driving for the first day. And then... And they'd all brought their, their stones, the, the symbolic weight, to leave at the, the foot of the cross. And so they were waiting for me um, before they did the next part down to El Acebo, uh, which is halfway down the mountain towards Ponferrada. Yeah. And we were giving a concert that night, so we, we had to rehearse. It was a tight schedule, I tell you. We had to rehearse uh, in the um, Basilica, in the afternoon, and then we gave a, a concert after the evening mass that night. Why did you decide to take the choir on the Camino? What was the motivation behind that? Well, we'd we talked about the full choir going um, and just um, singing in, in in churches, but not walking. And it was really important um, when, when that idea fell through. It wasn't related to COVID or anything like that. It was just. It was just a non-starter and too difficult to organise. Um, I just thought it would be a wonderful idea to, to have a smaller group and to put the onus on them to do the, the bookings, the hotel bookings. I just gave them the email address. It was just so easy to do. Gave them the sort of itinerary, got in touch with um, clerics in, in the churches there and um, and it worked out It worked out beautifully. And, and a number of them have said that this is just changed our lives you know and it was really really emotional to um to do the final concert in no febrero um as you know as, as you cross into galicia that's um, um the first community that you meet after you leave castilla leon yeah um and it was wonderful and to, to have lots of pilgrims there because the second concert was in lugo which is on the camino del norte but um it's um Obviously, not as many pilgrims do that route. So, the church was was full, and it was. Uh, I mean, what a setting! Really, yeah. they couldn't believe. We'd walked up to it um, the previous day, so they um, we got to have they, they got to have a look in, in uh, Santa Maria again, the same name as the church in Rabanal, but uh, a wonderful setting and uh, just stunning views across uh, across the landscape. 
Fantastic. You also write in the book, and and I just want you to talk about it briefly, you want to raise Mm. awareness of the painful arthritic condition of axial spondyloarthritis, which you inherited from your father you mentioned earlier. Tell us about that journey. Well, all all money, uh, if I make any money from from the book, is going to uh, an organisation, a charity based in London called NAS, N-A-S-S, dot uh, co.uk and um, they do tremendous work for um, for sufferers of that arthritic condition it affects all all the joints uh, lower back is the worst but it can be around the shoulders you can even have um, trouble with your jaw actually if you open it too much but it, it is lower back pain uh, which makes uh, singing in concerts and standing for a long time really really difficult especially now mm. Um, so dad is dad got really stooped. I'm not as, as stooped as him, but in, in later years, and it wasn't diagnosed uh, for um, until the 1980s for him. Um, so, uh, and the really helpful thing, Dan, is they uh, NAS produce videos, exercise videos, mm-hmm. um, and because there is no cure for. Um, axial spondyloarthritis and by the way congratulations because you pronounced that absolutely perfectly (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah exercise is the key even when you're getting a flare i used to think it was called a flare up but they call them flares now like trousers so when you're getting a flare even at at a really reduced level you need to be able to just try and keep the exercises going and the good thing about the website, I finally got to the, to the point um, after going all around the houses, is that they, yes, it's, it's in English, but they do videos of the exercises. So the gardener that we employ uh, at um, Rabanel to cut the grass in, uh, in the, the, the orchard, um, uh, Goyo his name is, um, I found out a couple of years ago uh, he suffers from it. And um, I'm not sure the treatment he gets is 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 what I would have recommended or or uh, medical experts here would. But uh, howsoever, um, the the exercises you don't need to be able to um, understand English. So Goyo can look at them. Anybody from any corner of the globe can look at them. And I just thought this is just perfect. So when I checked with my siblings. Um, are they happy for any money I make to go to NAS? They said, oh, yes, absolutely, you know. Fantastic. Oh, well, congratulations. We've talked about war. We've talked about world war. We've talked about war on the streets of Northern Ireland. We've talked about love. We've talked about pilgrimage, Spain, spirit, faith and hope. And you say in the book it's your hope that any reader with a particular interest in any of these themes will perhaps discover aspects of some of the others that may relate to their own life's journey. And that's a wonderful gift that you've given to us all, Paul. And I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your endeavours and thank you for telling us these wonderful stories. Congratulations on the book. I'll tell everybody where to buy it in the outro. Good luck for the launch on November the 6th. And thank you, Paul, and blessings to you and your family from me and, and my audience, my my small little Camino community. Uh, Thank you so much, Dan. 
it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm just looking at the time and it's over an hour now. So take the, I, I guess, the collective love and, and support from all of us um, in your endeavours. Buen Camino. Thank you. Can I just say one other thing quickly? Yeah. When, when, when uh, I, I say a little bugbear of mine, but if you wish uh, a pilgrim Buen Camino, uh, and especially when you're walking back at the end of a, an hospitalero stint and you're walking back eastwards instead of westwards and you're meeting all these pilgrims coming towards you, um, you, you know, when coming knows the greeting so that some of them will laugh and point, now Santiago's that way, what are you doing? Um, but anyway, so it's when coming or when coming the whole way. And if you don't want to be taken as, as a foreigner, if instead of saying when coming back to them and they've greeted you first, uh, and you say igualmente, which means equally or the same to you. I'll get you. Go on, say it. Igualmente. Igualmente. Perfecto. And that, that's that's really nice. So um, you, you can even from one Camino, you can tell it is somebody Spanish or the English or perhaps some nationality. But I sort of pride myself on that. But saying igualmente is just a lovely way of saying same to you rather than buen camino, buen camino. <laughs> thank you again dan that's just been amazing i really enjoyed talking to you thanks paul all the best god bless bye my guest this week is paul murray the book is launched in county donegal on november the 6th if you'd like to attend the invitation is at the belfast the belfast you can pick up a copy of paul's book from the gael tucked to galicia a son's tale at the great british bookshop.co.uk the great british bookshop.co.uk the northern irish poet and nobel literature laureate seamus heaney said if you have the words there's always a chance that you'll find the way We've certainly learned that this week via Paul Murray and his remarkable story. Thanks for your company as always. And again, a very special hello if you're listening on the Camino right now. Why not reach out to someone at your accommodation tonight or the albergue or in the bar or restaurant, wherever you're having dinner, and invite them to become a My Camino, the podcast listener. We're always looking to grow our little community. I appreciate the support. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Buen Camino.